0: Hey everybody, welcome to It's Real with Jordan and Demi. I'm Jordan Edwards. And I'm Demi Ramos. And today we're really excited because we have the legendary Thurston Moore. Yes, we
1: are in fact going to be speaking to the one and only Thurston Moore. And to say that he's a rock and roll legend is almost an understatement because Thurston is in fact one of the founding fathers of indie rock, noise rock, alternative post-punk, anything you can name, in the rock sphere, and you know, I'm gonna about die right now.
0: Thurston is obviously known for his work with Sonic Youth, but he also has a really rich solo discography that ranges from long form soundscape, guitar compositions, to more recently, he's been making more compact traditional rock songs. So I'm really excited to talk about both his previous work and what he's doing now. Thurston, straight up front, let's start at where we're at currently. You've got the new album out. Where did this album come from sonically? I was just talking, I have I have a co-host with me, uh, her name's Demi, she's sitting here now.
1: Hello Thirsty. Mm-hmm. It is an absolute pl- honor to have you on this show today. Um, I am a super fan of yours, um, pretty much all of your projects, and yeah, I couldn't be more excited, I just wanna let you know. <laughs>
0: cool, thank you. We were just talking um, before you called in about how the new music that you've been putting out you know, your your previous, your recent solo recordings, you've done a lot of, of longer songs, longer orchestral sounding compositions, and the new stuff you've released has been shorter, a little bit more compact with vocals. So can you tell us about putting this this new album together and where you're coming from from a, from a songwriting perspective?
2: I definitely wanted to put a record out this year that, was a return to the microphone. I spent about a year and a half uh, playing music that I had composed for these these hour-long guitar compositions, uh, which I really wanted to do when I did, and I sort of focused on that for a while, and I put out a like a triple CD box uh, last year, which was only three pieces. Um, it was three CDs. Each one had its own uh, composition on it, one was an hour, one was about 40 minutes, and the other one was, again, another hour. And um, I really wanted to focus on doing I- I- expanded, extensive guitar compositions, sort of a scene I came out of in the early, late 70s, early 80s, when I was um, living in New York City and playing with uh, electric guitar composers like Reese Chatham and Glenn Bronca, and, and just coming out of the no-wave scene and just focusing on this, this kind of music making and that 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 recording from last year was a bit of an honorarium to that it was like kind of a a a, um, you know a, a way of sort of wanting to deal with all of that history that i had in in such a way and kind of somewhat put it to bed but it was really kind of a learning experience because it 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 there was something really liberating about stepping away from the microphone for a while and having this really clean stage with no vocal monitors or having to deal with sound checks where you have to do the vocals and just like not, not thinking about singing and, and really just focusing on this, this you know, this, this pure uh, electric guitar music. It got that a, a bit out of my system. I really loved doing it, but I knew that I wanted to return to doing more formal uh, proper sonic rock tunes. And... So I uh, I did, mm. <laughs> and I kind of prepared this record for twenty twenty, uh, focusing on that. And but you know what I had done for the last year and a half with these really extrapolated guitar pieces, I, I they really informed a lot of. Um, what I was doing with these songs to this extent where I kind of tried to find a balance between doing that and the songs so there's a bit of both of that on this record I mean there's some more longer guitar pieces on this record Um, they generally will have a vocal section on them except for the very last piece on the record which is called Venus and that is more akin to what I was doing um, uh, during that last year and a half with these longer pieces in fact it was actually written at the time during the tour of those pieces and it was kind of constructed at that time and by the end of the touring we were also playing that one piece Venus Um, if people had us back for a a one or two encores they could have another 45 minutes of like (laughs) guitar music -hmm. and that piece was really intense It, it could go on for almost an hour but the piece on the on the record, it was uh, done. I did it in the studio. And it's, it's fairly compact. It's only it's it. What is it like? Eighteen minutes, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so, and uh, so that piece references that period. But it's the last piece on the record, and it's a kind of a deliverance piece after um, the sequence of of the album, which sort of starts out with these actual sort of sonic rock tunes like uh, hashish and cantaloupe and and then it goes into this more sort of possibly contemplative uh, music with just me on playing everything uh, and then the band playing these really heavier longer darker pieces and then that last piece uh, Venus which is sort of in a way is this kind of um of the record you know
0: so you're essentially kind of pleasing both sides of your fan base the people who appreciate your longer guitar compositions and those who like the more compact uh traditional rock songs
2: yeah yeah i mean that's who i am i always, you know when i started when i really when i started sonic youth with 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 uh, kim and lee it was just like the idea was to have a band that we wanted to experience, to see, to be like you know what what would and you know of course we sort of picked up all uh, everything that we loved from the from the bands that we were loving in, 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 in New York at that time and beyond and wasn't just New York bands and so I always think about like what what would I always think about what, what what kind of music do I do I really love and I try to sort of exemplify it I don't really think about I don't really think about pleasing people mm-hmm. <laughs> it's you. the truth you i mean i don't I don't, I don't i don't um i certainly never feel like i'm writing songs where i'm, I'm sort of um to use like a, a fairly derogatory term pandering to any uh like um uh, listenership or something
0: well even if that wasn't your intention that's kind of what this album is doing
2: yeah i mean it's a bit of a travelogue through all the different aspects of of, of songwriting um that I, that I've been doing, I guess um, it, it doesn't have so much. You know, I, spent a, I, I have a, I spend a lot of time working with like free improvisers and playing with musicians who have really devoted their entire musical lives to free improvisation as as and it was a very serious endeavor in their in their musical world, and I and I work with musicians. Uh, like that, because I, I'm so fascinated by that, by that um, discipline of music, and I get involved with them, and, and I have been involved with playing with musicians like that for many years, but there's, a, there's not so much of that on this record. In fact, I, I really don't think there's too much like, free improvisation as a genre music on this record.
1: Yeah, music has evolved with electronics. Do you think there is a chance for the revival of rock music?
2: Oh, I, well, I never really think of rock music as, sort of a, a, as, as a, a dead or passe form. I mean, I, I, for, for my interest, I, I always see really um, new and exciting uh, moves and, and rock music happening all the time. And uh, that's it happens. It happens mostly on the uh, in the underground now, but that was always the case for me. A lot of the times, anyway. Even back in the early '70s, where, when rock music ruled the universe, and you so the you yeah. know the biggest names in town were the rock bands, be it Alice Cooper or Led Zeppelin or, or whatever. even David Bowie was like one of the uh, most interesting artists because he was we came out of anyway. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs>
0: drop out of college in what, 76, 77, somewhere in that range, and you moved to New York, what did, what was your musical style like before you became influenced by, you know, New York bands and you were in the New York scene? What did your music sound like before you entered that world?
2: Well, I was really just um, following the leads of like my older brother and his friends from the, in the early seventies, these, these hippie lads who, uh, <laughs> you know, were sitting around playing guitars and, 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 um, trying to exemplify like Jimi Hendrix and the Allman brothers and, 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 uh, this kind of music, which I thought was kind of cool. I had, you know, I, I had no real means to, um, um, play music so much unless i sort of stole my brother's guitar while he was at work and plug it into like my family's like cheap stereo system that was sitting about on top of the refrigerator and wired into the back and make this (laughs) buzzing sound and i really kind of like the um just like that that reckless weird noise coming out of that small little stereo speaker with this hot wired guitar and so when i started hearing music like um uh, when I started hearing like more kind of raw music, like the Ramones, I was like, "Oh, that's that's the sound." And there, were, there was just um, there was something about this, just like the 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 primal essence of of of, of, of guitar music that made me want to be a uh, made me want to follow that, and it just sort of happened. Like in that period in the seventies, there was all these young bands that were. Um, seeing um both the stooges and the velvet underground it, in a way and those bands were just so obscure and to find out that there was other people who were kind of interested in that in, the, in that sound and wanting to start these bands was just like really exciting so i think the first things i started actually writing on guitar were um songs where i was pretending that i was in these kind of bands i think the first song i wrote was a song i thought I could, I thought I would send to the Ramones, and this is like in
0: '76,
2: and I started hearing about them fairly early on. And There was like a little picture of them in Roxanne magazine, and uh, and then I and then I would see their name in the Village Voice, and I finally went to see them in Westport, Connecticut, in '76, and uh, you know they were amazing, and they um, so wrote this song called um, "I Don't." Um, I don't have to mow the lawn no more. And uh, so, yeah, the lyrics were, I don't have to Mm -hmm. mow the lawn no more or pick my socks up off the floor.
0: And uh, (laughs) it was like two or three chords written in very Johnny
2: D.D. Ramone style. And and I was going to send it to the Ramones, but, you know, I didn't know who to send it to, so I just kept it to myself. Um, And so when I met, uh, the first guy I met who asked me to be in a band in New York City who this guy, John King, who I met at a record store, and he was going to Rhode Island School of Design, and he was in the class after David Byrne and the Talking Heads people, and he knew them, and he was moving to New York, and and he called me and said, why don't you come and play with us? And I did, and they were playing more in a Talking Heads, Jonathan Richmond in the Modern Lovers style, which was their thing, and which I really dug. And so I was bringing in more of this kind of maybe this this raw recruiter johnny thunders meets Ramones uh, thing but i really loved what they were doing coming out of more of a velvety talking heads thing and we kind of colluded and collided in this band we were called the coachman and we did a you yeah, know we did some gigs throughout 78 and 79 in downtown new york until i um until it kind of ran its course and the other musicians in the band who were art school grads unlike myself decided to further their lives and careers by focusing on their visual arts whereas i was just like i'm i'm here living in new york i'm 19 years old i have a cheap electric guitar i am not going to be doing anything else but you know and so i that's when i connected with some other people who and which brought me into contact with, with Kim and then through and then Kim and I met Lee and I kind of knew Lee a little bit before I met Kim because he was doing things um in a band that played with my band, and then he was in Glenn Bronca's group, and I was I wanted to be in Glenn Blanca's group. And then when I met Kim; she knew Glenn Bronco. It was all the scene. It was like a downtown; everybody kind of knew each other somewhat. Uh, scene at the time, uh, there was no real media focus on what we were doing, so we were all left to our own devices below Fourteenth Street and kind of crashing into each other, and so this morphed into Sonic Youth
0: how did being in those bands being in the coachmen being in the big guitar being involved with the big guitar orchestras how did that affect the guitar sound that that became associated with you and sonic youth the 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 interesting tunings the the kind of unhinged style of play the dissonance that, yeah
2: it was a bit of an epiphany you know yeah. I, I i i always recall being like you know around I was 20 and 78, so, you know, around that time, 2021, 22, I I recall sort of um, in my head thinking about how I wanted to have this kind of music that had this equal value from, like, the art music I was hearing in New York, the punk music I was hearing in New York, and um, as well as just kind of um, this this sound that also kind of extended back into what I loved about like the high energy rock coming out of Detroit, Michigan in the uh, late 60s the Stooges and the MC5 and then thinking about just the um the more avant-garde uh stylings it's like like Captain Beefheart and you know all these things were sort of like you know running through my head and I was seeing a lot of different bands um with the same kind of ideas, doing different things and to different modicums of success and failure. But there was one sound that was just like this really sort of full kind of moving orchestral guitar sound that I would think about. And I always recall stepping into this performance space uh, on Broom Street called A's, the letter A, which was run by this artist, woman, performance artist Arlene Schloss and some other people. And I and the coachman had played there a few times and uh, Glenn Bronca had just begun his uh ideas beyond the bands that he was in. He was in theoretical girls and the static and that there were these really sort of um uh, wilds or no wave groups, who I had seen, but this was something else entirely. And there it was. And I heard, I heard it, you know. And he was, he was accomplishing this, and it was his instrumental guitar music. And I didn't realize that he was using different tunings on the guitar, you know. And I think he had six guitars and two. And I might be wrong, but I think basically what he was doing was each of those guitars was one note on a, on a six string guitar so it was all low E's and then all low G's and then high E's and, and so it was like this one big massive electric guitar and making this kind of like this, this long music that was just that would build an intensity and become these huge clouds and it was like really artful and and the composition had all this kind of emotional logic to it and I just was like oh my God, that's the most incredible rock and roll experience I've ever had. And so I um, it, that is what kind of led me into thinking like, oh, I can do this. And it was soon thereafter that Glenn involved me in the group. But as, when I met Lee and started playing with him, he was already playing with Glenn and, and I, I had played some with reach chatham i mean it was just it was just we were sharing this kind of vocabulary and this ideas and this, this language and we knew our whole thing is like we wanted to be we wanted to be a band like television or the talking heads oh. or the patty smith group we didn't really want to be a band that was like um divorced from that in the sense where we were just kind of like in this this world of just like um downtown art gallery rock or whatever we really wanted to play the the venues with rock bands we we wanted to be associated with that and so we we kind of purposefully made ourselves into a traditional rock band of two guitars bass and drums and vocals but we were going to employ all these these ideas that we were gleaning from what we loved about what was going on in the downtown like you know guitar composers
1: how do you feel about the current state of music right now and how culture and art seems to be monopolized by these corporations? Um, what do you think it will take to have a turnaround? Well, I think we, I think,
2: I think the creative impulse of making genuine music uh, true to anybody's um, uh, feelings or,
0: or, or ideas and to their heart is always going to be, it's, it's always
2: going to be, um, Made regardless of whether there's some control system in the industry uh, or not and so that relationship is always going to be with conflict I mean this is a great conflict with artists who are making music and trying to find some kind of distribution network for it only to have to deal with something like Spotify which is you know as we know is a completely um, artist unfriendly kind of relationship you know it's all about um, creating uh, Revenue that uh, supports
0: the system itself of distribution and that has no uh, it, it has no
2: cause to give any support to the artists. The artists barely um, can break even uh, dealing with Spotify unless you're sort of selling millions of units. You know, that's a different that's a different negotiation. But ninety nine point nine percent of the artists who deal with a with a um, distribution network such as that not have that privilege or you know that, that reality in their lives so um, you can choose to be completely outside of it and, and work as an artist who makes music in any which way you want to organically um, I always tell young musicians I think it's great to have your music available on digital platforms because it makes it very sort of um, it, uh, it makes it completely available but always make something. It's always important to make something physical, that, to create something that has a vibrational quality that you can sort of give away as a gift, you know. And to spend the money on making a cassette or a record or or a CD, you know, or a fanzine or something is that you know some extension of what you want to do as such, and and have that be your exchange. Have that. Have that. That vibrational. Uh, gift uh, come between you and, and everyone and then at the same time have your music um, be available tr- tr- through these digital platforms. but you know, I, you know I say like you know you can share your, the sound of your music on these through through digital but you know you can't download you really can't download a record at all. you can download you can download the content of it, the, the, the sound of it. The
0: you know you can download the um, the digital numerical information,
2: of it, but you're not going to touch it. You're not going to feel it. You're not going to really actually be able to walk around and stare at it. You're not going to smell it. Um, and the, all of those sensual um, kind of sentient aspects of 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 creation are, are not there. Um, it's just this you know you, it's just this exchange of the. Uh, the numerical information that creates that sound. That's all it is. So you have to work... To me, it's like you have to work in balance with that and they have to work in tandem. And that's fine. I think, you know, you can't really... I don't really format prejudice. Um, one is better than the other. But I think they certainly... Um, I think they, they work together really, really amazingly. I think we live in this really great time where we have something like... Um, a situation like Bandcamp I, I find um, really pretty cool, especially, you know, a company like that that is at least at least doing um, something where they're giving these, having these Fridays during these quarantine months where the artists get 100% of their revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, that's big, you know, and that's like a gesture. And I think it can go further. I think it can be something that could be even more artist-friendly. But, of course, I would think that. But
1: um, <laughs>
2: I, that, to me, is, like, really wonderful. And I think that's, you know, for people to share music on a platform like that, I, I really I think it, that makes a lot of sense. I think the music seems... I mean, if you look at, like, what's available on a platform like that, and it allows you to sort of follow... Certain algorithms of it. If you're interested in like I- experimental hip hop, or if you're interested in sort of um, kind of <laughs> depressing, bleak black
0: metal from uh, from the Soviet Union, right? <laughs> you can follow these, these these
2: paths into like more of it, and then you can you can hear some of it before you actually purchase it, and all these things. And I think it's. I mean, that's the great digital record store right now. There's always
0: and inventive and interest in, in making new music
2: that's going on
1: speak to the wild okay is one of my favorite thurston moore songs ever can you tell me the story behind this song because you say this i always think about this you say the king has come to join the band is this a metaphor for something like what is your, <laughs> your lyric writing
0: process like? st- <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> i always think it's um it's a little quasi. It's a little quasi mystical.
0: <laughs>
2: <to say the laughs> um, you know, I, I, uh, I, it was, it was about sort of um, allowing uh, nature to be the truth and the the essence of inspiration. Uh, so for me, it's like um, the king is sort of like what is. What, what defines all of our lives, and that is sort of like, you know, nature or the so-called laws of nature, which is why I bristle when I think about like, you know, um, when administrations try to sort of create a, um, try to op- 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 oppress the fact that people need to, are are actually, uh, you know, in migratory modes uh, for whatever reasons, you know, whether, whether it be from I just sort of they just sort they just sort of come out and then I kind of somewhat modify them obviously if we're to work within the structures
0: of the songs uh, rhythm and melody. Thurston, you know, you're, you're known for having and playing a ton of different guitars. What is for the for the guitar nerds out there? What is your current guitar collection like? How many do you have and how many do you actually play?
2: I have like four or five guitars. I mean, a uh, couple that I've had for many, many years. A couple of Jazz Masters. I have a go-to Jazz mas- Master that's uh, from mm, early '60s, and then I have another one that I, that James Sedwards who plays guitar with me, uses. Well, then I have a, a third one, which is a, one of the Fender Signature Jazzmasters that was um, in production uh, a few years back. They're now out of production, that one, and the, also the Lee Rinaldo Signature uh, master. So I have one of those here. I have a 12-string electric guitar that um, my girlfriend, Eva, bought me for my 60th birthday because on the, in that year I was doing a... I had a commission to um, construct a piece for for 12 12 string electric guitars and 12 12 string acoustic guitars and i didn't have a 12 string <laughs> electric guitar so she bought me one for my 60 it's a beautiful fender um electric 12 and that's so the jazz master and that electric 12 are my prized possessions i have a 12 string acoustic here i have a six string acoustic I, have, I i think i have like maybe six or seven guitars and then i have a few um uh, guitars that were from that 12 string I wrote that were, um, that I needed to acquire and they're here as well. And these are sort of these, these uh, I have a couple of these Gretsch 12 strings and then I have some little, little banjos and
1: Rings.
2: tiny guitars that, um, come from different places in the world, uh, like Mexico and Turkey. Like I would go to flea markets and I'll see, and will see like beautifully designed little wooden, uh, Guitars, and I love sort of bringing those home. So I have maybe about seven of those here.
0: Whoa. Um,
2: I have a bunch of guitars, you know. I, I But there's like three or four that are, that are my go-tos, you know. And then back in the States, I have a lot of guitars that sort of um, have remained um, past the sonic Youth days, and I still have some of those um, around. <laughs>
1: I came across the year Punk Broke. Um, a film by Dave Markey. Do you remember that?
0: Yeah, very well. Okay, much.
1: so the first two minutes for for all your fans listening, um, it was Kim, Kurt, and you dancing to you beatboxing. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that day? And um, can you tell us about that two week tour with Nirvana? And what's one thing you can say about Kurt Cobain that most people may not know?
2: Well, I I had I had asked Dave Markey to come along and, and um, film this European tour because we we're doing all these uh, festivals at the time, and Sonic Youth's profile was kind of reaching this point where um, we, uh, you know, we were kind of um, fairly up on a lot of these bills. It would be us, and then maybe the Ramones were after us or something. Oh, wow. <laughs> and there was all these other cool bands that were like, on, on these on these bills. And then we had some. Also, we had some club dates, some venues, and um, we had asked. Nirvana if they would come we had done some touring with them in the USA and we really obviously really liked them and so when we were going to do this hero tour we asked them if they would come over and do it with us and they said yes and mm-hmm. they, it was the first time they ever came overseas from Seattle and I remember like going and meeting them at Heathrow Airport and and then we went and we went and Place and picked out some gear, and then we joined up in Cork, Ireland, for the first gig, and that's where Dave Grohl flew into, and I never met him because when we toured him in the USA, Dave wasn't the drummer. Um, right. And so we, um, so there's this new guy in the band, and and I was like, oh, nice. you know. I hope they're as good as they were. I mean, the drummer before was Dale Crover from the Melvins, you know, and he was great. And so that's who he toured with. It was, it was Kurt and, and Chris and Dale. And uh, so I was just like, oh, man, you know, Dale's so good. I mean, this, this kid. And I, I knew he was in this hardcore band in D.C. called Scream, um, who I'd seen. You know and uh but i didn't know him and that first night in cork they it was just like the band just took on this whole other level of just being fantastic in fact to this day i realized that those shows with that trio at that time i mean we were able to experience that band nirvana probably at the get their greatest i mean just at you know at the apex because they weren't there was no spotlight on them yet, and they were just raw and alive, and nobody knew what was happening. <laughs> so, like a lot of the, a lot of the people in the audience at a lot of those gigs, it was just like there was this band from the USA called Nirvana, who some kids made might have known the Bleach record, the sub pop scene or whatever, and it probably that band probably had. Maybe equal value to something like Tad or Mud Honey, or whatever. But you know, they were not even as known as Mud Honey. You know, um, and they just would come out and, and destroy. I mean, it was just, like insane. It was like you could tell how galvanizing it was each night in each room, just like people going like, "Whoa!" You know, like and then you know, and uh, and it really, in a way, it's it made Sonic Youth into like a. A wholly other, better kind of band because we were just so supercharged by them that we would come out and just like throw down these broiling sets. So it was a really good tour. And so I had had invited Dave along thinking that he would make a a documentary where we would release on VHS tape through (laughs) whatever (laughs) channels of just like this thing. Um, But as it happened after that tour, Nevermind came out. And Within months, it became this... The band that it would be cool to have Dave shoot this and they were like okay with it but it was kind of my responsibility and I felt like you know when somebody has a camera around it's a little invasive and so people kind of dodge it and duck it and I was like oh god I have to sort of like get this guy some content <laughs> so I became the, the master of ceremonies and I had so I just found myself clowning around in front of the camera you know for the entire time just so he would have something and and kind of forcing these situations trying to drag people in front of the camera okay we gotta do this you know uh-huh. and um you know and it was like everybody had fun and so like the whole thing with me beatboxing like that you know <laughs> and, and Kurt doing a bit of a I think he's doing a bit of a dance with Kim and some other kids and you know, that was in the moment it was like it was like before soundcheck you know we were just sort of like hanging out outside in some German vill- town somewhere and you know we were just like we were just be hanging And it was like, okay, we're gonna shoot something now. And I was like, all right, I'm gonna do human beatbox. (laughs)
0: It
2: was was all very spur of the moment, you know. Which I guess is sort of the the nature of the movie that gives it the energy it has. It. There's nothing. There's nothing very precious about that film. You know, it's all very. um, It's all very loosey goosey.
0: You live in London now. You're calling from London. Tell us about your life in London. What. what you what you're getting out of that city? What you enjoy about living there?
2: Oh, I love it. It's very welcoming. I came here many, many years ago, like eight years ago, and um, I followed my heart here. My girlfriend was here, and, and you know we we wanted to live together, and so and that's here we are. And and uh, putting we do book publishing here. Um, Eva was a book publisher in New York in uh, the 80s and 90s at Rizzoli and Abrams a senior editor and always doing art books and music books and so we do that here we, we do a lot of publishing here um, I put together this band here with James Sedwards who she introduced me to and, then, and he was a Sonic Youth fan and that was, he kind of understood exactly where I was coming from and then we connected with Deb Gooch from My Bloody Valentine who I had for the Sonic Youth years in the 80s when we played together and it just became this band you know this is my solo band and so I've been having such a wonderful time playing music with these people and the music community here in London is super vibrant and I've always loved it so to actually sort of be amongst it has been really fantastic you know I left I left when Obama was president. and I felt like everything was like in a great kind of um, we had a great sort of dignified sort of um, situation going on, and that kind of went south really big time through the years. And so um, I'm kind of I uh, I like I like the distance from
0: the the uh, you know. From the displeasure I I, I get from the current
2: administration, but even from afar, I I kind of find myself um, trying to uh, be as activist as I can to sort of bring things back to a more sort of um, bring some more bring back some dignity to to, to, to where I was. Born and raised, you know, I have a 26-year-old daughter who lives in Brooklyn. Who's like, for the last two years, has been really active in sort of helping uh, a lot of people who are on the margins, who sort of suffer the worst from a lot of. The
0: Yeah, we're, we're totally with you. We totally agree. Thank you so much for talking to us, Thurston. We really appreciate your time. It was an honor, oh, it was Thurston. really Thank nice you. to talk to you
2: guys. Sorry I was so late on the phone. I, uh, I uh, you know, long distance affairs, man. Yeah,
0: <laughs> totally cool. Totally cool. Nice <laughs>
2: talking to you both. It was, really, it was really sweet and really wonderful. All
0: right, thanks a lot. We appreciate it. Take it easy. See you guys. All right, Bye. bye-bye. Cheerio. Thank you so much to our guest, Thurston Moore. And thank you for listening to It's Real with Jordan and Demi. I'm Jordan Edwards. You can find me at jordanedwardsstudio.com or on Instagram at Studio.
1: And I'm Demi Ramos. You can find me at Demi underscore Ramos on Instagram.
0: Thanks for listening.